Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome back to the No One Fights Alone podcast, where we honor the men and women of our nation's first responder community by having difficult conversations about the challenges they face every day. You know, when we built this podcast, the, the main goal out of it was to make sure that we can provide resources and options for people across the country. Absolutely. Whether it's West Coast, East Coast, Central, it, it doesn't matter, right? And, uh, you know, the main goal is also to work together with everyone in this wellness community. Sure for one end goal. I'm excited about today's guest. Absolutely. Me too. And, you know, a little bit of background about our friend Adam here. Uh, You know, there's, in this industry, there is a, you know, a constant switching of jobs or departments or, you know, whatever it may be. That's, that's kind of the newer fad. Uh, The one thing I respect uh, about Adam here is that, you know, as long as I've been doing this, he's been consistent, you know, working with the same facility for a long time, uh, believes in what they do. And so, want to open it up to Adam and kind of introduce himself and then we'll, you know, further down the road, we'll talk about transformations and and what they do. Welcome, Adam. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate you having me on your wonderful podcast and uh, just uh, tell you a little bit about my story. Uh, Well, my name is Adam and I am a retired police officer, retired sergeant from a great state of New Jersey. Uh, You know, people have asked me, uh, you know, hey, hey, how did you get into this uh, addiction, mental health uh, world? And uh, it's funny because uh, I stepped into this uh, not expecting to retire and not expecting to uh, help people into recovery. Uh, many years ago, roughly about uh, at least 18 years ago, uh, I was uh, like any other uh, person out there. Had, I was married with uh, a few children. and. Uh, one of my daughters uh, happened to be struggling with uh, drug addiction. And as a police officer, your role on the street is to arrest people with addictions. Uh, you know, do we care? Uh, you know, somebody has asked me that. Again, my role was to, if the person needed help, we would take them to the hospital. If the person didn't need help and they didn't like us, well, we would put the handcuffs on and bring them to jail. And that was a daily routine. as. You know, we would handle many calls when we were on the road. Um, here I am uh, doing my thing, and I knew that uh, she had some struggles. And, um, you know, eventually uh, that big H word came out, and it was the heroin. And oh my gosh, you know, it, what do you do when your own family member is struggling? And on top of that, you know, I'm a police officer, I arrest people for that. So you don't broadcast it, you don't ask your neighbors, you look for help. And unfortunately, uh, I looked through a, a book that probably no longer in use called The Yellow Pages. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, but there, is, there was nothing that stood out. Hey, hey, if you need help, this is where you go. And it was very difficult. Uh, you call the, the county agencies, uh, the hospitals were no help. And it's an embarrassment. It's a disease but it's not like cancer or any other where people will be bringing you over food. You close your blinds and no one talks about it. And it was, it was definitely a struggle. It was not only a struggle for her, but a, definitely a major stress within our family. Of course it is because you don't know who to talk to. So not only was I struggling, is my wife was struggling, my kids. And you don't 
look at that. You look at the one person. So I uh, had my kids, didn't know what to do either. So um, I reached out to a number of people and weeks and weeks had gone by and uh, I ran into an individual that uh, literally said to me, Adam, I have it. Take it easy. We can do it. And at that point was uh, a few simple questions was, let me have your insurance card. And is she willing to talk to me? And uh, next thing I know, uh, she was on a plane down to Florida into a treatment center. And it was such a relief that this one individual knew what I was going through, knew what she was going through. And uh, there you have it. That was my first um, step into the addiction world. So what what happened after that? Well, of course, there's no easy way. You don't just step into the recovery world immediately. It's a long process, not only for the, the addict, but for the, for the, for the families. And um, I had to uh, learn a little bit about addiction. So as the weeks and months had gone by, I found that the police community were coming up to me, my own brothers and sisters were asking me questions about the addiction. Hey, uh, where did you go? What did you do? And so ironically, I became the go-to person. Uh, never did I think that I was the person to answer their questions, but because it's a silent killer, so to speak. Uh, no one talks about the addiction. So I educated myself and uh, became the person to answer their questions. I eventually actually, probably a year or so later, uh, went to my union in New Jersey and I said, hey, let's start a program. And the program was not just for helping police officers, believe it or not. Uh, my story was, let's help the families yeah. of the police officer. You know, we struggle. And what does a family do when they are faced with addiction within their family? Listen, I'm going to even go back further. You know, my mother was an alcoholic and you're probably looking at in the early 60s and 70s. And I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. And I was embarrassed the way she acted sometimes. And I didn't know anything about addiction. So what do you do? I, I became a troubled person within the household. I didn't respect her because she had an alcoholic problem. So what led me into this world now is that I... I went to my union. I said, let's create a hypothetically 1-800 number. So if any of our brothers and sisters or family members needs help, that's what we can do. And uh, they definitely listened. And the help of, from other officers in the uh, state, they developed an excellent program. And uh, I do commend them for that, is that it took them, like I said, about two years to develop a program. But again, it's, it's a resource. It's not a cure, but it's at least a resource that if somebody was going to struggle, they can uh, call and get help into a uh, recovery center. You know, I think the, the uniqueness of this story is, is uh, such a great talking point. Uh, I just want to take you back there just for a minute because I hear your passion. I hear, I hear the passion in your voice in, in this, but the, what drives that passion was the you didn't have anywhere to turn initially you know, what, what kind of things were running through your uh, mind, your heart? Uh, I can only guess, you know, hurt, pain, fear, you know, what's next? How do I take care of my child? Uh, right. Well, you know, it's, um, this is actually, thank God that it was before the fentanyl 
page that's out there now, but the fear was, uh, you know, this is your child. As much as the arrests that we make as police officers, now I'm looking at my own family. And, and did I want her to get arrested? Did I want her to go to jail? No, I wanted her well. And yeah. the community, the, there was nothing out there that stood out. No one ever talked about this. And, you know, I guess I, I'm never going to say it's the beginning stages, but even the school didn't help. If there was a discipline problem, they disciplined them. They didn't say, hey, there's a behavioral thing. Maybe there's something going on. So as no one had reached out to us and gave us a red flag. I mean, looking back, of course, there were red flags, but uh, we didn't know what to look for. Listen, I'm a police officer. I searched my kids' rooms no matter what. You know, I wasn't, even though I didn't suspect, uh, that's what you're taught. Hey, you know, you love your kids. You want your kids safe. But as teenagers, maybe they... They bought something home, and that was our job is, hey, look through their drawers because you never know. And to this day, I would probably tell all the parents the same thing. You know, if you're underneath your own roof, you have the obligation to look through your kids' rooms, of course. But there was, you know, anything that I did or my wife did at that time, nothing stood out. Behavioral issues, yes, but nothing stood out that there was something going on with uh, drugs. And unfortunately- normal, Normal kid stuff. Normal kid stuff. Yeah. And if, if it wasn't for, believe it or not, a incident at a local food store that I knew the manager brought something up to light to me that I went home and addressed her about this issue when she came clean and told me, and I was, I was floored about it. It was just uh, something that I needed to address and find out where to get help, and it wasn't easy. I think Nowadays, and because I'm in the world of addiction and recovery and mental health, I think there is absolute abundant amount of treatment centers out there. Do I feel that people should still struggle the same way? Uh, I think it's a much easier path now to reach out to any one of these treatment centers, not just the one that I work for, just to reach out and start the process of getting that person help. And I hope the hospitals now, or at least instead of just bringing them into the hospital, and getting them medically cleared that they're actually suggesting and saying, here, use a treatment center, get your son, daughter, husband, wife, aunt, uncle help. So what year was this, if you just don't mind me asking? Oh, now you're going to have to make me think about that. So. I mean, was it was it prior 2010? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this was before like... Yellow Pages. Well, yellow Pages there. Yeah. yeah. I think Yellow Pages was still <laughs> around 2010. I definitely mentioned that Yellow Pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. Uh, well, I think there's been a drastic... I mean, I think 2012 with like Obamacare and everything that kind of came out there really shot the doors open in the treatment industry and, and made it viable for people to start being able to find help like this this was a hush hush situation back then uh, i think a little bit more there was not a ton of you know public oversight or you know addiction was still kind of shoved under the the rug sure. a little oh bit. it was it yeah. was and uh you know you did what you had to do there was there was absolutely nothing out there and as as we sit around this table here and Brad being a police officer you you're not educated at all to, and it wasn't your job to pick somebody up and get them help. If they needed help, at least in my agency, we did what we did. You call the ambulance, put them in the rig, and your job is done for the day. Uh, you don't follow up with that. It's, you would hope that the hospital does their job, and that was the end of it. And of course, we had overdoses within our community, just like everyone else. 
even Narcan was not out yet. Okay. But, you know, you tried to save the individual. And uh, again, depending how long you were on the call, you know, get them on the rig and your job is done. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks a lot to your character that these officers in your union started to utilize you as as a resource. Uh, when they when this started uh, up, was there was there any options for first responders or were they going through kind of the, any treatment center that was available? Well, there was nothing for first responders. And uh, that's what I want to get into here. Yes, I struggled. I got into the addiction world because of a family member. But when the world of first responders, there was nothing out there. It was not talked about. Trauma in the world of first responders is, I guess, maybe now it's being brought out with these wellness conferences that are, that are appearing before the uh, country now. But there is nothing. You are told in the academy, you are told when you go you know, to start a police uh, job to suck it up. Take your trauma, take whatever you're dealing with. There is no crying in police work. And unfortunately, I learned that the first year I was on as a police officer, it was uh, my dream job. Uh, just like I think every officer comes out of academy, you're, you're gung-ho and you can't wait to ride in that car and you know, maybe use your handcuffs for the first time. You know, you're, you're wearing the Superman uniform. It is uh, quite an experience. And you know, I guess the only thing that I think comparable would be anybody else that's in a uniform job, you know, uh, the military, absolutely. You know, you have your shoes shined and everything else. And then uh, I remember, and I don't talk about this gentleman at all. I was my first year on and I, I was dispatched to a, uh, a uh, first aid call, which came in as a um, little girl that had apparently burnt her hand and I was dispatched because we are the first responders. Uh, you know, we're not a big city, so the volunteer first aid come um, when they come. And I, I remember walking to that house and hearing the screams. And I walked in, it was a, uh, I think she was two or three years old, was crawling or around on the floor. It was during Christmas time and she spilt over a uh, potpourri hot wax thing on her. And uh, it, it went over her face, her head, and most of her body. I heard the screams, and, and I, as I walked in, it, it was terrible. And um, somebody had started the shower, and, and they were bringing her in the shower. So I'm, I just acted like any other father. I, uh, I tried to cool the burns down. And it was and also you, the smell, the smell of the flesh will never, ever leave you. And that day, you know, I called out the troops, you know, with the paramedics and you get the helicopter ready and I do all the things that you're trained to do. And it actually came normal for me, but your adrenaline is, is at the top limit and you're going, 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 paramedics come, they, they administer morphine to her. The mother is screaming, the father, it was just a chaotic situation. Again, I worked in a small town, so now you escort the ambulance to the helicopter fly zone and you're doing all these things. And, and I remember after the incident was over and the helicopter lifted off, I leaned against my patrol vehicle. And for the first time, I felt like I was going to cry. And another officer walked over to me, looked at me, laughed and said, you're going to cry. And I knew at that moment, suck it up. You have to suck it up. There is no emotion. You cannot show anything. And that was my first experience of trauma. And 
I will tell you that that one incident carried through my entire career. I could never talk about it. Uh, if I saw the mother in a local store, I had to turn away because I knew somehow it was just the trauma. I actually went to the burn center with um, one of our dispatchers and another one of our officers to visit that girl in the burn center. And that alone is an experience. You know, this, uh, this is a great conversation because we're talking about uh, humanizing these officers out there. You know, you're, uh, we've talked a lot about the brain activity, you know, engaging the limbic system, which is, you know, which is what, what he's describing there. And, and, but the reality is he wasn't asking you a question. He was making a statement uh, to you about this is not okay, uh, which is so common in our culture to say, hey, this is, this is not the way we act. You, there's no crying. There's no feeling of emotion. There's no, you know, the crying is an external act of what's uh, inwardly happening there with us. So I think, it, and, and I can relate to that. Um, I had a terrible scene, uh, not to not to get into the scene, but the reality was when the scene was gone, I walked to the back of my vehicle and threw up. Yes. And it took years for me to actually tell anybody that that had happened. Years. Yeah. Uh, I feel the same way. I I never, never talked about it. And, uh, so here, you know, we talk about, you talk about your one incident, I'm talking about mine. That was my first in my first year. Now it's funny because uh, I saw trauma. I saw trauma, uh, adults hit by cars or, or, or many, many, many first aid calls and, and suicides and all these things that you see. And it may have not created the trauma, but you never forget every scene, everything you come across. It's a memory in your brain. And sometimes, you know, I talk about this. It's called cop humor. We laugh about certain situations. Oh, did you see that? Oh, did you, you know, look, look at that suicide, you know. But when it comes to children calls, there is no joking. There absolutely is no joking. And so you take one year, you compound that, oh, two years, three years, next thing you know, you know, police officers doing 20 years, 25 years of looking at trauma. It could be almost every day. And we brush it off, but we do soak it all in. And, you know, and I will tell you that, uh, you know, I had, a, unfortunately, another uh, uh, teenagers, uh, actually three, that got severely burnt. And uh, I remember holding one kid's hand and, uh, and he's asking me um, if he was going to die. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was tough. It was tough when you, when you look into their eyes and, and, you know, the, what are you going to say? Of course not. And unfortunately he passed the next day. And, uh, I'm just going to say this, you know, there's a commercial on TV. Uh, and I don't know if I can just throw that. It's called Shriners hospital. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the victims had uh, gone there and every time now, for some reason that appears on the TV, mm -hmm. I have to turn away. It just brings, sure. it triggers me. Yeah. Uh, so here I am, I'm talking about certain in, incidences within my agency and what we deal with. And, and I thought, okay, you know, I'm the go-to guy with addiction. I'm helping uh, police officers. I'm actually helping anyone, families I come across within my jurisdiction that their son or daughter needs help. And I have no problem. And uh, there are some people that I've been able to save and some people that I have not. Uh, and I thought within my career, okay, well, what haven't I seen? And then, of course, towards the end of my career, I get involved in a deadly shooting. And you're talking about making, making your head spin. The trauma that I went through, um, it was just, it was, it was pretty terrible. And um, 
it was uh, absolutely justified shooting. Uh, you know, anytime uh, somebody has to die, it's uh, it, it is a terrible thing. But you know, there's trauma on both sides: trauma for the families, trauma for us. And um, I didn't get the right help. And I did go back to work. I remember jokingly that a former police administrator within my township thought uh, what I needed was go to the range two weeks later and throw some rounds down range. And that was my therapy. And I said, really, that's not going to help my brain. But if that's what you think, chief, that's what I'll do. And uh, so I went back to work. And I remember my first night back to work, I was dispatched to a call. Now I'm in charge, by the way, because, uh, you know, I had my many years on and I, I became a sergeant. But uh, I needed to make notification at three in the morning to knock on somebody's door, and I couldn't. I was having a panic attack. And I, you know, simple, hey, knock on the door, by the way, a notification, and just froze. And um, throughout, without asking for help, even though I tried, I, I needed to do something. I needed to get help. I needed to do therapy. And now here, I am the one that needed help, and I didn't know where to turn. Did you know this at the time? I mean, were you cognitively aware of the space that you were in as a whole person, or was it still a little foreign to you? It was definitely foreign to me. But what I said to you from the beginning, what we teach in the academy is mm-hmm. to suck it up. Yeah. That's exactly what I was doing. Right. I did something that was, um, you know, I wasn't taking care of my body. My, my personal life was, was terrible. I was suffering. So what I... I I was trying to do as I was actually trying to uh, die in the line of duty. Uh, I was putting myself in situations where I shouldn't have put myself into. If, you know, especially as a supervisor, you're supposed to sit back and direct your men and women to the right spots within the within that circumstance. And I was trying to put myself through the door first. I was like, oh, well, maybe if I die in the line of duty, I'll die that hero. And I knew I was a ticking time bomb no sleep, you name it, uh, taking uh, Xanax or just taking anything uh, that was prescribed to me to, uh, to calm down. And I just knew that something was going to happen to me. By the way, you know, the, many people don't know this, but the average life expectancy of a police officer is 57 years old. And I was, I was coming close to that age. That's over 20 years sooner than the people that we protect. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, Definitely. So believe it or not, and I don't know if this was a sign from up above, but as I said, I was a a ticking time bomb and uh, I just knew, and even the individuals that I work with knew there was something wrong with me. One night while sitting in my patrol car, got a sign from up above by saying, oh, we're going to play with you a little bit more. And I ended up having a stroke on duty. And uh, Though I denied I was nothing was wrong with me, I was uh, I was taken to the hospital, and sure enough, they said that you had a stroke, and uh, it was just all the things that were happening within my life just came down to that one moment by saying, if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't change, if you don't take care of your stress, you're gonna die. And at that point, I just said, uh, well, life has to change for me, and I had enough time in in the police agency, and I needed to step away get myself healthy and get help. And that's exactly what I did. Changed my life, changed my life for the better. And the moment I retired, I stepped right into the world of addiction, recovery, mental health. And I've been doing it now for about eight years. 
uh, helping anyone. Though my primary goal is to help first responders and veterans. If somebody calls me with their son, daughter, husband, wife, that even if they're not a first responder, I will go out of my way and help that person get help. Doesn't matter where they go to treatment as long as they get help. And I, I think that's why, uh, you know, personally, I wanted to bring you on something like this is because of that view right there is let's get people help. Right. And thank you so much for sharing your story. It, it is one of those things where, you know, I truly believe that the people that can help others are the ones that have something in common. Right. And you understand the plight of the first responder, the veterans, the family members. I mean, every inch of this process, you understand and you are able to convey that to people that, hey, first off, there's hope. And also, I know what you're going through. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely know what they're going through. You know, nowadays, you know, people need to understand, uh, you know, we have a new era now of school shootings. And, you know, it's difficult to see that these officers have to put themselves in this circumstance. But who cleans up these scenes? Who takes care of these horrific scenes that people have to clean up? And these images will never, ever go away out of these officers, EMTs, paramedics, firemen, even dispatchers who have to dispatch these calls. Uh, we're all first responders in a way. Uh, we are, definitely are. And we, there has to be enough information out there to get these people help. Now, with that said, where am I now? I work for a drug, alcohol, and primary licensed mental health treatment center in the state of Florida. It is uh, known as Transformation Treatment Center. We have a number of facilities in the state of Florida. And what we do, we have a first responder military veteran uh, program within uh, two of our facilities. And we focus on these individuals that come in and face trauma. Our clinical staff that is in this program are either first responders and veterans. So they know the individual facing them when they come in, know what they went through. And that's the, that's the hardest part of being a first responder. We don't trust anyone except our own. And, and that is a shame, but that's the way it is. So in order to be successful in what we do, we have people that have backgrounds in either law enforcement, EMTs, veterans. I mean, gosh, look at what these veterans go through right now. So when we bring these individuals in, they come down and they're faced with uh, either a first responder or a veteran talking with them. We have one facility in the, the Ocala area that's also known as a um, residential treatment center, and that is uh, transformation at Mending Fences. At that facility, we have a higher level of mental health. So if an individual is not suffering from any addiction but just severe mental health, we would assess them, uh, would go to our medical staff, and then we would place them at uh, Mending Fences. It is on a 400-acre equine therapy ranch, and that if you've never seen equine therapy, I, I, if there's a possibility that the listeners can see the therapy around horses, it is absolutely amazing. To watch these individuals groom and walk around with these horses is just an amazing process. The other treatment center that we take care of our veterans and first responders is our original treatment center, is Transformation Treatment Center in Delray Beach, Florida. And again, at that treatment center, it's a different type of model. It's called the PHP model, which that 
represents is that the clinical building is on one site, our housing is on another, and our detox is on another uh, site. Similar to you may want to think of like a college campus. So they're not under one roof. Again, it's uh, up to the individual, it basically where they want to come to treatment. But both of our facilities incorporate not just therapy, but other things such as adventure therapy, groups at night, uh, various types of not the same old, same old every day. And again, it's the people that are helping them or first responders helping first responders. Well, this is not this is not the therapy of old. This is not the uh, you know we're we're I love I love hearing this because this is way outside the box thinking that really works. And I uh, I love the fact that you're bringing up the you know the current buzzword is the cultural competent you know whoever cultural competent environment. Uh, but the reality is you bring up a great point of uh, officers, veterans, firefighters. Uh, they want to know that the person they're talking to understands them and creates an environment where they're going to be heard without, without that person breaking down in tears or rejecting them, telling them silly. I mean, that's a real thing. It's definitely a real thing. You know, one of the things I want to bring up, these uh, officers, now I'm only focusing on, I'm only focusing on maybe police officers, but I wanted, again, these are corrections officers, dispatchers. These are all people that are in their front line. We talk about frontline workers these days, you know, nurses, doctors, but somebody that has put many years into the job and they falter. We all know that we have problems within our lives. No one has a perfect life. Uh, traumas happen every day to every single person. So do we take that person that has been on 15 years and discipline them? And that culture has to stop. That individual has dedicated many years onto the job. And because they falter, don't discipline them. Give them the opportunity to get help. If they had cancer, would you discipline them? Of course not. So what's the difference if they have a mental health or an addiction issue? So we need to have the, the uh, command staff, the supervisors, the employer look at it and say, hey, look, let's get these individuals help. Because they're a valued employee. They've dedicated their lives to the, this one uh, career. So to help these individuals, I love it when I get somebody into treatment because they go back and they become a better employee. Sure. Absolutely. That, that's a huge thing that oh, I've, I've never understood really is, especially in this particular community, is if someone has been successful, you know, quote unquote successful in their career for, you know, 15 years. And they really realistically have another 10 years on, right? They're capable of doing another 10 years if, if they're healthy. Why would you punish them, right? It's, it's been someone who's so reliable, you know, so capable. You've put training, time, money, effort into this person to make them who they are today. And they are now, you know, suffering because of the things that they've seen. Why wouldn't you send them to treatment and then have them come back and work another 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a uh, there's a really uh, piece missing here, and I think it has it's a culmination of things of the of the culture, the stigma. But I do think you know conferences like this that were at IECP Officer Safety and Wellness. There, there's a there's a breakdown. There's a beginning of a breakdown of the stigma, uh, and and some agencies are better than others. Some agencies the fences have fallen. Other agencies are just learning how to do that. But I think these conversations are paramount to. Knowing and understanding, hey, this this works. There's people gone before 
us that have done this. There's people who are, are better employees because of, uh, because of, of what we've done. So, I, so let's circle back to Adam. Love your passion, man. This is, you can hear it. You can <laughs> yeah. hear it in your voice that you care about people that you haven't even met down the road yet, and you, you hear it. So I want to circle back here as we kind of start winding this thing down. I, I, what makes you tick, man? This, this is, you, you know, what, what, do you, what do you get out of this? I mean, you've been serving in this for a hot minute. What, what, what is it? Oh, that's an easy is to hear that voice on the other end of the phone, uh, that officer, that dispatcher, that corrections officer said, hey, man, you saved my life. First thing I say, brother, sister, I did not save your life. I just showed you where the door was. And to hear the passion in their voice, to hear them saying, hey, I'm going to do what you're doing. I said, listen, uh, God bless you. I, I love the passion, and uh, that's what keeps me going. Is upsetting is when we all lose somebody yeah. in this sure. crazy, crazy addiction, yeah. mental health world. And that's sad. We don't hear a lot of that, but we do. Sure. You know, it's definitely part of it. But when we save someone, it is, there's nothing like it. It is like a natural high. Yeah. And, and I, I just, uh, I'm going to keep going. Well, you live for that one, right? Because there, we have heard about the people that have not been successful and, you know, that, it breaks our hearts and it's really tough to hear, especially if you've, you know, helped them along the way or, you know, their personal story. But then just like you said, it takes one to keep you going. Right. Cause some days, some days we wake up and we say, I don't know if I can do this today. Sure. And magically for whatever reason, those days, somebody calls and says, look what I'm doing with my life or look what I've done. Or I'm, I'm got my marriage back. I've got my job back or whatever it may be. And you live for those successes. Yeah. And they just keep you going. And every time you hear one, it's you add an extra month onto your career, right? It's what it, it feels like. It's what it feels like. You know, uh, I work for Transformations. You guys work for Chateau. And at the end of the day, we are not competitors at all. We work together. All of our facilities, we should all work together to get that person help. And that's what it's all about. And, and I'll just end with this, that if, uh, if anyone actually needs to reach me, uh, can I uh, throw my number on? Absolutely. Absolutely. Throw it out there. Right. For sure. We hope yeah. you do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let, me, uh, let me just uh, give you my uh, cell number. It's uh, 732-330-8801 at 732-330-8801. And I cannot thank uh, both of you, Austin and, and Brad, to have me on here. Uh, you truly do God's work and uh, to spreading the word to, to help. Uh, all of our first responders, veterans, and the average citizen out there that definitely needs help. You know, Adam, I uh, really appreciate you coming on and sharing, and and I could not agree more. It's been, uh, you know, I'm new to this, uh, but it has been such a pleasure uh, to get to meet and work with and see how these uh, uh, these facilities uh, work together and intertwine. And and uh, it's it's not about. I love the the mindset of this is not competition. This is uh, collaboration. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for your insight and sharing your story. Uh, thank you, guys. Stay safe. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. 
Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.